0: Welcome to episode six of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Hello, everybody. Before we get to today's interview, I just wanted to take a moment and to say that if you're interested in childhood hearing loss, or if you're a parent of a child with hearing loss, I encourage you to get involved with the Alexander Graham Bell Association for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing, or A.G. Bell, as most people refer to it as. A.G. Bell supports listening and spoken language outcomes for children with hearing loss, and continues to be an incredible resource for both parents and professionals. So, please visit the website at agbell.org and get involved and support with your time or resources this great organization. And now, on to today's interview. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Kathy Newburn. Kathy is an SLP and a certified AV therapist in the Katherine Ham Center, a listening and spoken language program for children who are deaf or hard of hearing at the Atlanta Speech School. She serves the early intervention, preschool, and elementary age students and coaches parents and caregivers. Kathy provides instruction and supervision to speech language pathology grad students and CFY speech-language pathologists, and mentors, professionals pursuing their LISL, or Listening and Spoken Language, certification. She received both her bachelor's and master's degrees in speech-language pathology from the University of Georgia. And today I'm excited to have Kathy Newbern, a longtime friend of mine and a colleague, with us today on The Listening Brain. Kathy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk with you. As always. Well,
0: it's, well great it's great always great, great to talk with you and and unfortunately, we just don't see each other enough when well, we definitely. only see each other at these conferences and and mm-hmm. things like that. And so I what we've done here with this podcast with the listening brain is to, you know, bring on Some really talented professionals in the field, and some parents as well. And our goal is to just have a conversation about how they got started, uh, the choices they've made in their careers, and you know what led them to uh, sort of focus on auditory-verbal therapy and listening in spoken language. So today is your turn. So, how did you get started in this? And 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 maybe take us back into your early life. And so where you grew up and, and then uh, college and then getting into the field.
1: Okay. Um, I would say, well, when I was, I have to think a little bit. Growing up, my family moved around quite a bit with my dad's job. So we would move often from think from actually the time I was born, every couple years we would move. So, even though I was born in Philadelphia, I moved about five times around the United States. But when I was 10, so just to move things kind of quickly, we moved to Atlanta, and my parents had decided they'd had enough of moving and they wanted to just put down roots with me and my four other siblings. So, we have a large family of seven. And, oh so, we, and so, we stayed in Atlanta. And I have actually've stayed in Atlanta my whole career, and so I think that has that's significant for me because I have a large network here in Atlanta and mm-hmm. I think if I were to go anywhere else well how would i how would I rebuild and so it's that's kind of a it's an interesting challenge and in then it's a little scary too I don't have any plans to do that but i <laughs> i I appreciate my my roots is what I want to say um, but I went to high school here and I went to college in it in Athens I went to the University of Georgia and I got my bachelor's and master's in speech language pathology and it was there that I was first exposed to a special curriculum for children with hearing loss and that was in do we want to use dates <laughs> I th- well I wouldn't we say don't it's have the, to use dates we, we don't necessarily but I think um, one of the most important impactful event I would say that has shaped my career and and ours too is that the advances in technology because that has changed things so much and and driven things so that um, but also has helped me to appreciate how much the importance of listening the power of hearing Um, so when I was in college I took a class from... So,
0: you were mentioning having this new instructor, this professor mm-hmm. there. What was what was her name?
1: Her name is Joan Lawton.
0: Joan Lawton.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you know her?
0: I, I know the name. Yes. I, I know the name, so mm-hmm. I may have met her in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So, it was great to have her come, and so she taught a class, and then... And one of the things that I distinctly remember is going to the our local um, program at the Atlanta Area School for the Deaf, and one mm-hmm. of our jobs as a student in her class was to actually do a ling check, do a listening check with these children who are um, who are deaf, and um, and so it was a real opportunity to actually take what was on the paper and put it into practice. So that was that was very interesting to me. And then the next semester, um, actually it was a quarter back then, next quarter, um, I took a class from her that was language language for the hearing impaired based on so um, that was the name of the course. And then that's when I really started to understand more about language development. It's funny because this is at the graduate level and this is back in the eighties when language was new, or you know or this. Right. and so um to actually we really took language samples, we really delved into language development and i I found that um that was that really helped me just i think that helped me to kick off my ability to start analyzing and and listening to language and listening or noticing my it really helped my observation skills I think in that in that way um so that was also impactful to meet Dr. Lawton because she was the person who referred me to come to the Atlanta speech school to interview so she said you know that she encouraged me to go there to interview for a job because they were hiring and they needed at, a preschool teacher
0: at that time. Yes. So right after, right after graduate school,
1: huh? Yes. She did I'm recommend that. That's great. Yes. And actually I think that's right. Yeah. So I, um, I came and interviewed at this school and actually it was called the oral school at the time. The department right. was called the oral school and I wasn't really sure what to expect because it was not at the, um, the Atlanta area school was different. This is at the Atlanta speech school. It was my understanding right. that it was an oral approach. But when um, I wasn't sure what to expect, I guess is what I would say. So and my just, job. Just
0: hmm? to clarify, the Atlanta uh, area school, hmm? that's a, a state school for the deaf.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: And and that they focus more on ASL and total communication.
1: They do. And at the time, they had um, – it, it's a program that went from preschool up to um, 12th grade. And the children there, um, they, they did have – they had a sign language track, and they also had an oral track okay. at the time. So then to come to the speech school, <clears throat> I think in my head I wasn't sure what to expect because um, – I'd seen, and total communication was very strong. That approach was um, was what I was exposed to most at the university.
0: It was hammered into me as well. (laughs) The best thing is to meeting all kids' needs. Yes, here's here's this one thing. It's the only thing you need to know. Just do total communication.
1: Right, because total it was everything. So you're giving a child the benefit of everything, and so that actually was my thought as I came to this school, and I just wondered, I think in the back of my head, oh, uh, you know, I'll show them <laughs> that mm-hmm. this is the way you're supposed to do it, because it's so hard, you know, we were hearing that it was so difficult to to learn to talk, um, and it wasn't really on, the emphasis was not really on listening, because it was the assumption that they couldn't really hear you, I think. Right. I remember um, that was one of the words, and I will tell Um, speech students now that the word that you would hear us saying often was look, Mm -hmm. look, look here, you know. Um, And now it's listen, right? And now it's listen, definitely. Mm -hmm. So um, the first, my first job, actually it was my first interview and I, I was like offered the job and I took it. So it was, (laughs) it was, um, it was actually it was, it was amazing. I did, I was looking forward to it. My my job was to be a, a preschool teacher in the morning, and then I did speech with the school aged kids in the afternoon because it was a half day, five day, um, half day classroom, five days a week with the preschoolers, and then in the afternoon I would see the school aged kids for speech. And then I also saw some children um, after school who came from outside the school for some additional um, speech work.
0: So let me, let me ask you in terms of being a new graduate in speech learning language pathology, becoming a preschool teacher, how was, how was that transition? Do you, do you remember?
1: Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> I have to show you a picture. I had to, someone asked me to find a picture of me and first of all, I look like totally, it's like, who is that child? <laughs> but, but the, um, the way that I thought about it, I had a class of three. Mm-hmm. So in my speech brain, I thought of it as like a language group. So okay. I'd done group mm-hmm. language at the university, and that's kind of how I ran it. it was like a, an extended therapy session, so to speak. Gotcha. Um, but I realized very quickly that um, I wasn't really sure about the classroom management piece because I'd never been a Teacher, right. you know, so I having to do, um, but I did have the um, I had the benefit of some really amazing teachers who took me under their wing. I went to observe their class, saw how they ran their classrooms, and I were, was able to pick up tips. And they would come mm-hmm. in and and actually, my coordinator, the the director at the time, um, spent a lot of time taking me under her wing as well to make sure that I was. Doing what I was supposed to do, and got some support with um, how the day should look, how the the schedule should run, um, and then also, um, I guess, tips for you know behavior management and things like that. And at that preschool age, I I felt like I would often um, be—I felt like my job was helping them to just be able to do school doing air quotations. So it wasn't because they were little two and three year olds didn't like coming to school was a really fairly novel idea at that time. Right. Yeah. And then the other part that was um, a big change for me was working with parents and having them come and observe in the classroom. And that was a, that was very different. Um, Of course at the university, when you're doing speech therapy, Often, or most often, the parent was on the other side of that one-way mirror, you know. So that was a big difference. And then, so taking it to the next level where you would see the same parents every day, you'd have conversations with them. It was, um, that was something big, uh, big change that I had to get, I had to adjust to. Um, And so, and I think that is, well... I think for me the biggest changes that have occurred it, as I've gained more and more experience um as far as what I've learned has been with regard to auditory development and developing auditory skills and then also that parent engagement that piece is just um those were ones I was not pre- well prepared for I think when I got out of got out of school but I, I on I had on the job training I think that was that was what I was able to to gain.
0: Well, I've, I've often said as speech language pathologists, you know, we get lots of instruction and training and speech development and language development and even cognitive development, but we never get any information on auditory skill development and how that ties into speech and language and cognition and everything else. And, uh, it's, you know, what you've described is, is similar to my experience uh, mm-hmm. being trained as a speech language pathologist. I didn't have the, the uh, additional training that you received having those courses and having that, you know, professor that had that experience that could, mm-hmm. you know, teach you in those extra courses. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't have that. And mm. most of mine, you know, had to learn after I graduated. Yes. And, uh, and that's, what I tell my students today is that you know you know how lucky in a sense that they have someone myself and Denise Ray and yes. others who we have on faculty that are working with them to give them additional information mm-hmm. that they wouldn't typically get mm-hmm. but what I've also told them is that you always have to stay sort of up in terms of what is happening in the field, right. You can't just rely on what you get in graduate school to sort of be the end of everything you learn. Um, Definitely. And, and and I still get surprised looks sometimes. Of course, they're in the middle of trying to finish a graduate program, thinking, "Don't tell me I have to keep doing this forever." You know, and keep taking classes. And, but, you mean uh, there's more? <laughs> yeah, and so they, I, I understand where they're coming from. Sure. Oh yes, um, you
1: want to be done. You want They want
0: to be done and want to yes. be there. But
1: uh, I,
0: I think they understand that it's they have to keep learning, and, and even in this little area of hearing loss that we have,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, they see the how you know the technology has changed so much, and now if we didn't stay up on that, we would really be left behind, and and right. then we couldn't serve our our families and our children as well as we could. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, going back, um, you were talking about, you know, being that teacher in the classroom and sort of making that transition in your mind about, you know, being the speech pathologist versus being the classroom teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, how did, how did that day flow? You, you said it more like a extended, language group throughout the morning
1: Uh, that's that's kind of how i would think about it and um i think since i well looking at that since through the lens of several a few decades of of (laughs) experience but um having this the therapy perspective where i have goals in mind and -hmm. things that i need to accomplish and then i think that's the the approach that I had that I brought to this little group of children that I worked with. And so I would have my activities and I would kind of check those boxes. And, and as I was doing each activity in my mind, I'm also, even though I'm not sitting there with my, um, my notepad keeping data in my mind, that's where I started to, um, I started to do that. So that, that diagnostic, Uh, skill. Right. Um, Diagnostic I, teaching. Right? That was using that. And um, it was like, um, and, and, and in a, uh, what I don't want to say in the meaningful context of the different activities. So at that time, the children would come in and we would have calendar. And that <laughs> back then we didn't have um, back then, wait, back then, We used a a chart, you know, I had a great big chart tablet and I had my markers and I had black and white uh, little caricatured pictures of everyone. And we would uh, put the, the day of the week and we'd have everyone who is here. We would have everyone. We would go through the same routine over and over. There's lots and lots of repetition. Um, Mm -hmm. We would have, Oh gosh! When I would write their names or I would write a sentence, we also used graphics to indicate oh, yeah. the, the the prosody of the uh, the sentence or the phrase and as oh gosh, I think we also used marks to indicate where the verbs were those were underlined twice, and so there are different things that we would use visual cues that we would use to help support what the, was the, the
0: um what was wasn't there a a program for deaf education, like the Framingham program or something? I think
1: that that sounds right. I'm forgetting what it's called. I think so. (laughs) It was very visual. You
0: you did all those notations. Yes.
1: Mm -hmm. And also at the time, um, because we had several children who who had profound hearing loss um, and very powerful hearing aids, we were using... We cute I learned cued speech. Mm-hmm. So I found that that was beneficial to learn as I was talking to these little ones because I was very slow, sure. <laughs> slow to start, but I didn't have to. And I was saying the same words over and over. So I was able to mm-hmm. learn some cued speech. Um, but because I would, that's where my phonetics class, mm-hmm. I was so glad that I enjoyed phonetics and that made right. sense to me. So to when I talk about cued speech to people who aren't to speech pathology students, I said, it's like visual phonetics. So you're Mm -hmm. just putting it on your, close to your face. And so, um, I learned how to, to cue. I got to the point where I was able to cue phrases and sentences pretty well. And I also was able to understand at that point, um, uh, how to show co-articulation. So I was Mm -hmm. really thinking about how I was speaking and mm-hmm. but it was all very visual. And we also used a. Um, so it, I'm just jumping all over the place cause I hadn't thought about this in a You're long fine. time. Yeah. So we had, um, we started out with calendar and we would talk about what the children would, were doing. We had like a show and tell um, oh, news book where the chil- Each child would open up their news book and they would talk about what they did the other day the, at home. And then I would always have to have something that we did. So it was, there was, there was always a visual with print, um, right. and then we would have a speech. We'd have speech time, and I had this big box. So we had a—I f- don't know if the correct pronunciation is phonator or the phonator. Have you? Did you ever uh, see the polyphonator? Yes, with the big microphone and the disc oh, yeah. that you would oh, hold yes. in your hand.
0: Yes, I used to use those at the North Carolina School for the Deaf. Mm-hmm. My first position outside of when I <laughs> left grad school. So. Sure
1: did. Yes. So um, we would have, and we would do listening checks. And the, I would say, um, all of the children in the class could at least hear three of the six sounds. Actually, by then it was five. Uh mm. each. We didn't yeah. do, mm, right. So we start out with five. <laughs> You're taking <laughs> me way back.
0: Before there were six. And there's
1: only five. back in my day <laughs>
0: there's only five there's only five members of the band That's right. They, they added that new that new person
1: that's right oh my goodness so no. but uh gosh i hadn't thought about this in quite a while and so and and having that um so we would have calendar we'd have speech we would have um, we'd have a language activity where 'd have a specific i'd have specific vocabulary or specific language structures that we would target um, a lot of it was thematic you know based on what right. the um, something that was happening in the cal- calendar year or the season or an event. Um, I remember snack time was mm-hmm. a huge time. We had snack for at least half an hour and then people are like, you're you're eating with cheerles. Like, hold on no, there's, there's so much language. language so yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. And having and so we had snack and then we also had um oh what was I gonna say? Um and and celebrations if it was a birthday, of course that was huge. Um Every holiday was celebrated to the nth degree. So you're just pushing in, sure. pushing in language, and um, um, and I, I think I taught I taught preschool for th- three years. Mm-hmm. And um, with each group, I think the first group I had, I had the first year I taught, I had three or four kids. My second year, I ended the school year with six. <laughs> six little ones, Mm -hmm. almost double. And at the time I only had a, I had part-time, I had a part-time assistant. So when I think Mm -hmm. of myself with uh, six two-year-olds that I used to laugh and just say, um, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that, uh, because I I didn't have any children at the time. And I thought, how do you, how do people do it? (laughs) Have multiple children that you don't typically have more than one child at a time but I thought oh my gosh how do you do it having all these little ones at at the same time with
0: so I, I have to ask have you run into any of those former students from those early years
1: yes I have I um well I have one in particular that I've seen recently and I actually I keep her picture um actually right here at work she is a um let's see she i want to say she's in her late 20s. I think um, she went to um, she went from here to um, mainstream um, mainstream middle school, high school. Went on to college. Went to private college. Went to has um, graduated. She actually got a cochlear implant when she was in. I want to say she was 10. Um, Ten or eleven, and she's now a mother of two, and wow. uh, and her her family is wonderful. And I, um, I, when we were talking about technology and the amazing things that have have happened with technology, um, it was great to see how she was able to benefit from getting a cochlear implant. But I also realized from my roots, my early roots here at school, that even if um, if a, if it's a family's decision that they would like to pursue spoken language for their family for their child, that it is possible. It, it just it's so nice to have access to sound. Of course, it just makes the makes things so much easier. But right. um, you can make every decibel count. You know that mm-hmm. you can uh, with a lot of hard work. It, you can develop um, very useful, you can develop great language skills, but it takes a a huge family effort. So it's, it's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I do see her some, some, um, every, oh, it's been a while since I've actually seen her. I've seen her mom. I saw her mom a couple years ago. So they send me Christmas cards and things like that. But I still, every time I see her, I think about this little tiny tot that came in to see me. I was like, look at this amazing, wonderful woman that you've become. And to uh, see the whole family, that's when I really appreciated how it's a huge, um, it's a, a a family effort. Everybody working together to help your help their child be successful. As, and now I'm a, I'm a mother too, and I think that's right. I would do the same thing. So, having right. that that uh, um, that drive for your child, I really appreciate that. Just so. do
0: whatever it takes to. Make sure they're going to be successful. Mm-hmm.
1: And having everybody on board. I knew the, you know, knowing the children and their parents and their grandparents and their siblings and, um, and they, it was everybody participating. And uh, I think that's what made that's. I think that's what makes every child successful. Um, yeah. you know, as a when and when I've talked to um, speech students, I really think. Mm-hmm you know, ask them to think, who are the kids who are the most successful as a, with their communication? It's the ones who's, usually it's the one where the ones whose families have communication as a priority or an expectation. Right. You know, they, they're very chatty with their children and they're very um, involved with their kids and communication is, it's a, a goal for an, ex, an expectation for for them so that's um, right
0: so and I, and I think you've hit it on the head in terms of just part of what it takes you know what it took then and even what it takes now I mean the technology has make has made hearing a little easier for these kids but mm-hmm. it has to be in an environment that's supportive of of listening and language definitely and um and so that's, you know, th- those things will never change. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's just what it takes. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to uh, ask you, so after you finished, you, you were there for three years. Oh, mm-hmm. And then you went from there to where?
1: Well, actually, um, before I, I moved on, I... Within our school, we have several different departments. So I was a preschool teacher in one department for three years. And then I went and worked in the clinic at our school.
0: Okay.
1: And which served children through adults. So I got to be just like a regular SLP in the clinic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did, while I did see a few children there with hearing loss, I was able to um, kind of polish my skills, maintain, polish, um, And also add to those skills, um, going to ASHA and um, conferences and and things like that. So I had three years um, in the clinic. And then I came back to the same department and worked with children. Um, Children were getting cochlear implants at that time. And so Mm -hmm. I came back and worked. um, Oh, I was back as a preschool teacher again for two years. Wow. And then the f- the next school year I was, I uh, worked mainly as just the SLP for the children who had cochlear implants in our program. So kind of shifted from the so preschool.
0: You had yeah. those opportunities to go back and forth. So that yes.
1: Great. Yes. So that was, that was really great to, to have that opportunity. And, and it was then because I did have um, the experience in working with kids who had gotten cochlear implants that I was offered the opportunity um by a former colleague um or conne- I made the connection through a former colleague at the uh Children's Hospital here in Atlanta to participate on their cochlear implant team and that was um not that I was uh unhappy at my at my current position or at my position at the time but I was interested and intrigued to have that opportunity to go and help build the cochlear implant program at um, the ch- at children's, which is uh, it was a a children's hospital at the time, and then, the, now it's merged it from two separate children's hospitals into one major one program one. at the time
0: mm-hmm. yeah yes and that's where I think you and I first uh, yes came in contact with each other is, uh, when you were at the hospital
1: yes and I was trying to think when when did we meet I know it was the the conference that you had from the University of South Carolina. It was a sound beginning revisited. I think mm-hmm. is what it was called. Do you remember Char- when that was? was? That in
0: Charleston, I think. Was yes. Yeah. With G. Bell.
1: Yeah. Yes. When was yeah. that? That, <laughs> I that? I don't that remember. That had to
0: be around uh, ninety six or ninety seven. Okay. Because like
1: that. that was pivotal for me to meet you, yeah. Todd. I have to tell you that mm. that was. So I'm gl- I'm really glad to have that. Um, to have met you, so yeah. we could talk about that if you want. <laughs> well, that was uh,
0: that was an interesting time because for me, because I had you know graduated from uh, the University of South Carolina, did uh-huh. my master's there, and 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 speech pathology, had gone to the School for the Deaf in North Carolina for three years, and then I would come back. Mm -hmm. to the university, to USC, to do my Ph.D. work. And that's, at the same time, uh, Tammy Bradham, who's a good friend, uh, Mm -hmm. she and I, that's where she and I first met, uh, she had stayed over. She had finished her master's in audiology, and she started the Ph.D. program when I started the Ph.D. program. Mm. And uh, we uh, noticed pretty quickly that uh, there was no... Uh, South Carolina chapter of A.G. Bell, Mm -hmm. and at that time, we decided that we were going to do something about it, and Mm -hmm. we called the A.G. Bell office, and they basically told us that it wasn't going to be worth our while to do anything in South Carolina, because that was the uh, auditory-oral wasteland of the (gasps) country. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. (laughs) <laughs> yep, that's what someone on the line told us. And, uh, oh. and so oh. they really didn't give us a, a lot of support to get something going. Hmm. But um, within a few months, we had something going. But what they did follow up on was they did come back and offer to do a conference. And that was the uh, the ah. conference uh, in Charleston mm-hmm. um, where they wanted to do the 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 early intervention sort of revisit that topic mm-hmm. and and that's what we decided to do is one mm-hmm. of the first things we did with our chapter was mm-hmm. to to support that conference and to try to get people there and
1: kind it of was a great that. conference oh my gosh it was great you had Joel bader and christina Pirago and you yeah. and yeah. we
0: had some nice people mm-hmm. jumping in
1: Mm-hmm. And I bought a sweatshirt. <laughs> Do you remember the, the sweatshirt that I heard that? Yeah, um, you could
0: color yourself. If you, you could.
1: <laughs> I forgot about that. There, oh, there my gosh.
0: With black <laughs> writing, so you could color yourself.
1: That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. I did. I bought the whole thing. I was, I thought it was great.
0: <laughs> yeah. We did uh, some wonderful, I mean, we, yes. I, I back at that time and we did some really fun things with the yes. chapter and with the parents. And, yes,
1: and and that's right. And you had a parent panel talking. I mm-hmm. remember you had, um, what, I had forgotten that you had a, a panel and I gained so much information from coming to that. That was so great that having, Jill Bader was talking about the top 10 strategies for parents and Christina Perigo was talking about transducer, trans, transpose transpositional hearing aids Transposition hearing aids, hearing aids right? yeah. and we got a chance to listen with them and then right. to have the the parent panel and there were um oh av therapists mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. the families were talking about strategies that they used in the classroom so that the children could hear and right. passing around a boom mic and a kleenex box i gosh i'd forgotten about all these right. things but i came home just yeah. full of information that was that was just great um the other thing, though, that I took home from that conference was talking with you and Mary Jones because she was there mm-hmm. talking to speech language pathologists about the prospect of becoming an auditory verbal therapist because right. Right. that was not something that was it was a rel- it was a new idea, uh, a certain idea of my of my skill set that I felt like I had enough. Mm-hmm. Right. But then I realized, wait, I'm missing some key information. I need to find out more. But it was an okay thing to do. It was right. I it's a good thing to learn more things. It's a, it's good to, you know, you can't come out of It's okay not to be out of school and not know everything because you there's more to learn. You can learn more things. That's, that's okay.
0: That's right. Well, I'm that was- I am thrilled that, that conference meant so much to you and that you <laughs> Sort of double down on your efforts to mm. pursue auditory verbal. Mm-hmm. So you, at that point, you're you're recommitting to AV in a sense, or, <laughs> yes, or re-upping. I,
1: it's like I uh, can do it. I you can. can do it, and and so
0: you're, <laughs> but you're at the children's hospital and working mm-hmm. with the cochlear implant program. Mm-hmm.
1: So I was doing that, and actually for me, um, with regard to the. Well, I wanted to. I started out doing um, assessments for the cochlear implant program. Mm-hmm. Um, I did pre, um, pre and post cochlear implant speech language assessments, speech language evaluations.
0: Was that with Wendell Todd, the yes mm-hmm. the surgeon? Mm-hmm.
1: And he's now retired, so we. I used to get. This is really weird. <laughs> I need to cut you
0: off. No. I used to get mail for him. When I was in South Carolina.
1: Oh, cause Todd, Todd Houston.
0: Yeah. Wendell Todd, his mail. And every six months or so I would send him a few pieces of mail.
1: For wow, time, I would get. His mail. <laughs> have you ever met him? Did you guys ever meet? I don't think
0: I've ever met him.
1: Oh, he was amazing. He was, it was really great to have a chance to meet him. And I worked with him. Um, throughout my whole career at, at children's and, um, and beyond there too. So um, but he was,
0: he was very focused on a continuum of care.
1: Yes. And he would tell parents that uh, what he did is like, Oh yes, I'm, you know, I do the surgery, but really the, the biggest piece is the hard work that you're going to put in after you get this cochlear implant. It's the right. prior to, and after it's, it's, it's on, it's on the parents and the family. So, he used um the listening and the listening and speaking therapy is what he would call it. So he's um but um, that's neat that you guys kind of cross paths in that way. So I would to, write him a note
0: and, and <laughs> say hello and that kind of thing. But I don't know if we were on some database and names got transposed on some list. Oh,
1: wow.
0: It was always stuff like you know, like a a flyer about a conference or something. Oh, okay. Like that. Things, things like that. So it was mm-hmm. probably met, mis, mixed up in some database that <laughs> some, somehow, but, and so how long are, were you there with the implant program?
1: I was, I was there for, oh, let's see, 15, 16 years. Wow. I started out at the hospital thinking, well, I have to, I have to, um, go back a bit, when I first started working there, my assumption was, oh, I'm going to work with all these children who, with hearing loss, and we would be part of this cochlear implant program, but actually, the way it started was, like, with little trickles, and what I did, I worked in outpatient rehab, in an outpatient rehab facility that really opened the doors wide open, because we worked with children who had many different kinds of communication disorders, as well as physical and uh, possibly cognitive and um, pragmatic needs and uh, feeding. I was exposed to helping children who um, had oral motor speech disorders and feeding disorders and children who are on the autism spectrum and uh, uh, um, assistive, uh, assistive technology um children with um we are, at that site where i was working we saw a lot of children with cerebral palsy so i learned um, about myofascial release and sensory integration and um it was such a great time for me to learn to co-treat with occupational therapists and physical therapists and working with social workers and um feeding specialist. So while well, that wasn't what I bargained for when I first started at, that, at the hospital, um, I, it, was, it was a really great learning experience for me. And it certainly wasn't anything that I expected when I was in grad school. At the, that's what I would be doing. So, so as I started out, I didn't have many children. But by the time when I started working there, one of the things that I changed about my approach personally was to, because of auditory verbal therapy, I started bringing in all of my parents, no matter what their child's diagnosis was, to come and participate in their child's speech therapy session with me. Awesome. So that was a big, this is another big turning point for me was to incorporate um, a parent being in the room. Where. Before, it seemed like I was kind of afraid of parents, which sounds terrible, but I didn't. It's like, oh, I don't know, or how are we going to make this work, and um, just trying to work out r- rapport with a parent and know where they were coming from and get on the same page and just learning how to do that dance, you know, learning how to dance with a parent. How do we work together? Um I think that was the first time we had done that and I realized that in order to be to consider it as being true AV therapy the parent had to be in the room they could not be in that observation room. So that was something that just had to do and so that is something that uh has changed me too that I I have the parent well that I had the parent come come in no matter what we did. So by the time I, I left there in 2010, 2000, yeah, 2010 um, I had a caseload of over 30 children with hearing loss on my wow. um, So I was seeing mainly children with hearing loss at that time, but um, with some other, other kids in, in between too. So things changed a lot. I learned a lot and I became certified during that time too.
0: Sure. You know, what's interesting about what you just described is that when you go back and look at that cochlear implant history, where in the beginning we had such stringent guidelines Mm -hmm. in terms of what we had to follow and who was a candidate and who wasn't a candidate. Mm -hmm. You know, children with additional disabilities or cognitive challenges or anything like that, we we wouldn't implant. Right. Of course, now that's completely flipped. Mm -hmm. And so... Now we're implanting those kids that have autism uh, mm-hmm. you know have all these you know this comor- comorbidity that 's there or mm-hmm. you know secondary or or you know other syndromes that are happening so your all of your experience <laughs> sorry, all of your experience <laughs> that you've you had uh working with all those populations um it's, it's amazing what we see now because mm-hmm. now those kids who are, who have those diagnoses in addition to hearing loss mm-hmm. are now getting cochlear implants
1: mm-hmm.
0: and now they are being successful with mm-hmm. auditory verbal in many, in many cases. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think when, when I think back to how I learned more about auditory verbal therapy or the auditory verbal approach, um, I, I feel like I I learned the hard way, <laughs> you know, where we had kids who had, um, a lot of them had a, a, additional issues. Um, so I learned with, with the tough cases first. So when right. there are no other conditions, if it is mainly hearing loss that the child is having to deal with, um, you're, it's a temptation to think, oh, easy, <laughs> that's, that's all we have to work with, but, or do, or work work with work with not against as they work with it but um but I really do I was able to really gain an appreciation of how a child is able to develop auditory skills no matter what if my I felt like um if I was part of a program where where we were putting an implant into a, a child's ear then it was my responsibility to help the family develop their listening skills as much as possible. So maybe, it, maybe they, at some point they were adding additional supports. Maybe mm-hmm. some children were uh, learning sign language at the same time. But when they were coming to see me, our job was to help their child to develop auditory skills. So to make their their residual hearing or their amplified hearing functional to the uh, to the op- the to the maximum to, the, sure. to their to their um, as much as possible <laughs> right. Optimal benefit. So, yeah. mm-hmm. so I so now, I think um, knowing what the kids were able to accomplish in the face of additional challenges, um, I feel like it's helped me to become an even stronger advocate that mm-hmm. that these things are possible um, and also the I think I, I, I now am um, really intrigued by the idea of um, or by the research that's coming out about bilingual learning and multilingual learning right. that if a child is able to develop an auditory base and in, in, in spoken language um, and they are able to use their auditory skills, then they can learn other spoken languages, too. Maybe, you know. Um, if they're speaking English at home, they can learn Spanish or German or something else. Um, and by the same token, once they've learned to listen and develop a, a spoken language, then if they want to learn a sign language, mm-hmm. they, then certainly you can become trilingual. Or um, So I, I think that um, it's, it's changed the way I talk about language with families, too. What is the what is the desired outcome for the family? What do they want to do? Um, but to know that I'm not, things aren't black and white with the regard to what, um, what the future looks like for their child and, and language. Sure, that weren't be just because I'm we're doing auditory-verbal therapy does not mean that I am against your child learning sign language. I'd certainly not, you know, or I'm not against your child learning another language, you know, uh, that's right japanese Whatever language. sure yeah wherever that mm-hmm. might be right so now um so let's let's change the way i i um think about listening in language and um i was going to say too an, another thing during that time after i met you i also had the um Another pivotal moment for me would be when I went to hear um, Carol Flexer and uh, Judy Simser do a, a conference in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm. I forget, I think it was called The Power of Hearing, I believe is what it was called. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I'm just so, I just feel so fortunate to have gone and I've had such great people and, um, in my life that um, have helped to steer, steer the course of. Um, this career path but to hear dr flexer talk about um to take the to take the points on the audiogram and talk about what is available Mm -hmm. at each point on the audiogram plus or minus half an octave it may it The speech acoustics, understanding speech acoustics, that was just like a um, a huge aha moment for me to go. That's why. That's why all those kids or those little kids that I was working with way back before they had access to sound. That's why they weren't able to hear the difference between ooh and e. That's Mm -hmm. why they, you know, at the time my name was um my they uh, my maiden name is Mikhail, so they would um they would they would see my name. They would talk, they would say my name, they would see it. So my name was Bipal is what they would say. And I thought, well, why can't they say the M? I don't understand that because Uh, so, and now after having it, it's like, Oh, well, that's why anyway. So I just thought it's like a key. I felt like a, the key opened up the, that locked part that I was like, Oh, so if I have access, if I can hear that sound, then I can hear the difference that's why, so. And that's why.
0: Yeah, it's it's so funny that, you know, that's that's one of my pet peeves, I guess. Is, you know, and as speech language pathologists, we have to take, you know, the speech and hearing science course or courses. Mm-hmm. But they're almost never taught in sort of a practical way. Yes. That you actually can apply What what does this mean clinically when you mm-hmm. have a child and you have, They can only hear a certain informants or, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's still, I think it's still a big issue. It's, I mean, I think if you, if you, you know, rounded up 20 new graduates from even Mm. University of Georgia. Sure. (laughs) uh, uh, And even I would say even Akron, you know, where Mm -hmm. I am, um, the students that specialize get additional training in it, but you know, the average student probably wouldn't know how, you know, to explain, you know what a formant is, and mm-hmm. how that affects their their clinical uh, intervention or strategies they mm-hmm. would use with a child uh, that had hearing loss. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not taught to put that together, right? Um, and it's it's still a big. I think it's still a huge issue out there that mm-hmm. just, it is just I- kind of glanced over.
1: Right. I think initially when I first. I took a speech science class. I thought it was cool to see the spectrogram and say, oh gosh, here, let's look look at this voice print. That's really cool. But I didn't I couldn't make connect the dots as to what that really meant. And it took quite a while for me to actually understand what Me too. To get the point. But then once I got it, I was like, oh, that's what you're talking about. So what are the words that we need to say? (laughs) Like what what do you need to say to make it more make it clearer between not that it's mysterious, but it just seems so complicated when you're looking right. at the speech signal and then translating it into real life. How do you make those two pieces go together? And
0: well, my my you speech science class because my my undergraduate degree is in journalism. You know, my mm-hmm. first career was journalism, and then and so I, I didn't take my first speech science class until I was in graduate school, and mm-hmm. and the guy that taught. The class at South Carolina, uh, I guess, was told about three weeks before that he was teaching it. (laughs) Great. (laughs) And so, Hello. I I remember this vividly because we had it at eight o'clock in the morning. And he would come in and he would just sort of say, you know, here's the handout for today. And that's all I have for you. And he would walk out of class. So he never really taught or lectured. I, I probably over the course of that summer, he taught. Maybe three or four times. Oh no!
1: That.
0: And so the rest of the time, we were literally reading the book. We would get together in sort of these little, like a learning circle. And, you, know, <laughs> you know, all of us scared to death, trying to figure the stuff out. You know, reading through the book, the textbook, and reading through his handouts. Oh, how awful! And it was, it was, you know, an an a terrible experience <laughs> of trying to learn. Oh, uh, no. And and to have that be such a pivotal, especially when we get into auditory verbal, yes, a pivotal course and, and content that you want to try to apply.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So a, a lot of that that in terms of applying, you know the the speech science and hearing science, mm-hmm. it was truly learned on the job and mm-hmm. and other reading and other presenters like going to hear Carol Flexer or you know, Sylvia or mm, you know, yes. the other people out there that would talk about acoustics and, and what it really meant and, mm-hmm. you know, how to use this as, you know, tools in your toolbox, so to mm-hmm. speak, to, you know, treat the children that you're working with. And mm-hmm. so it was, you know, really, again, like we've been saying, learning on the job and in the field after graduation because we didn't get it during our graduate program.
1: Yes. And I... I think having being able to to up, quickly apply what you're learning in real life situations. I think that because looking at, I remember just even reading um, Dan Ling's books too. Mm-hmm. Back then, it was was very dry and difficult to get through, right. and now when I pick it up and look at it. I just think I realize how brilliant he was to put all those things together. And that maybe that is the key is that he was trying to take that very technical information from the speech science and then trying to put it into practice. And it just, it took a lot of not well, mental work and talking about it and then seeing it live to be able to connect all those dots that made it, that made it, uh, quite the challenge, but, um, It was good to know that we were in the same boat. boat. (laughs) And uh,
0: again, it's, you know, unfortunately, I think it's still happening. Mm -hmm. So after you were
1: at the hospital, you said 16 years? I think so. Something like that. 15 or 16 years. I have to do the math.
0: And so then you've come back to the
1: Atlanta Speech School. Yes. So I'm back. Now known as the Atlanta Speech School. Yes, that's right. So tell and, me
0: about your role now,
1: okay so now um, let's see when I came back i i had a once i had one school year half a school year where I um filled in for someone for an assistant teacher in the preschool who um, had gone on maternity leave, so mm-hmm. i was I was back in the classroom, and I loved it. It was great to be back with the the kids again and um I had some experience in the class, but I didn't, well, I guess I'm still, I think I still brought my therapy brain with me because I'd been doing individualized sessions for years and years. So then to go back into the classroom and be with the groups, the group of kids, um, I, again, I had to get used to the 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 daily schedule. And sure. But I think one thing that really changed over the course of time was Um, And through the focus on an auditory-verbal approach was bringing all the aspects of listening and speech and communication and language and um, um, cognitive development and things all together at the same time. So I didn't... When I first started as a preschool teacher, we had our we had our speech time, we had our listening time, right. we had our language right. time, everything was all parsed out, oh, yeah. but I tended to see it more um definitely from an auditory lens, and mm-hmm. then everything f- so you had the auditory foundation then all the other pieces went in there so um and I was still diagnostic, still doing those same same things, but um within the the realm of the the classroom so I did that for um, one school year, and then the next school year, I filled. I, th- a speech position came open within our department. So while we already had one speech pathologist on staff, they were able to add one more, and that was me. So I started um, back doing um, speech with the kids, and then I would see children for auditory verbal sessions um, in the afternoon. So I would, um, is that right? I think so. So after the school day or when I would have a break, I could have um, children who are coming in with their families um, and I would see them as well. So that was, um, that was a nice way to kind of keep things going um, with regard to auditory verbal practice. But I felt from that point on that I was, um, it was ingrained in me that that's just, that's who I, who I was. Um, And now at the present time, I am, um, we, I'm mainly in a, a speech role um, for the children who are in the preschool here. So I see them um, two or three times a week for individual um, sessions. But I do, I'll ask the parents to come in when they can to participate in the session. And I find that I love it. I love having mm-hmm. the parents come in as opposed to being afraid of parents. <laughs> like, sure. please come in. It makes things so much easier when you can see what we're doing and I don't have to write all these notes like because you're here. So they they can see what we're doing. Um, and I, and then I also see children for, um, individual AVs, AV sessions too. So I'm able to do that. Um, one thing that's different is that we have been dabbling a little bit or adding more kids to my caseload through, um, that include telepractice. And so that's an area that I, Mm -hmm. I'm realizing where my, um, the, the area that I'm, I'm, focusing on to develop now is my, um, ability to coach right. in a different way. Um, having a parent in the room where you're working together, it's, it mm-hmm. seems like once you get, you become accustomed to it, it's easier to do because you're playing together. Right. But when you're separated and <laughs> by a screen and the, the child and the parent are on the other side, it's, that is, that's a, a new, um, new set of skills that I need, need to develop. So, um, it's, or I'm it's, developing, I'm developing them now. Yeah,
0: it, it's, it's a different way. And, uh-huh. um, it has been a learning experience for me as well. And I, I, am constantly thinking, you know, how can I do this better? How mm-hmm. can I, you know, take what I've learned and what I do? And cause at the two days a week, I'm at Akron Children's. And so I'm working with parents in the mm-hmm. room with us. And then, of course, when I'm at the university, we're doing telepractice. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always sort of in a in one sense code switching back and forth between mm-hmm. parent with me in the room versus mm-hmm. the parent you know on the computer and and always thinking, regardless of where I am, what can I do differently to make this easier, or how can I explain this better uh, so that this parent will understand it? Uh, in a way that is going to be meaningful to to him or her. Yes. So that when they leave here, they know exactly what to do when they go mm-hmm. home. But uh, when you're adding that computer into the mix, doing telepractice, it's um, it's very it's an interesting uh, transition as mm-hmm. a clinician to now yes. going into that sort of pure coaching model. And I, I've had some clinicians who've done this and who say they wish, you know, they'd only done telepractice all of their career because it's like oh. the, for them, they say it's sort of the purest sense of parent coaching because you hmm. can't rescue them. You have to talk them through. Mm-hmm. You have to help them be successful even when they're, you know, challenges and you can't sit there and you know, reach over and rescue.
1: Yes. Oh, I can. that That's a really good point. Um, that's true to start out from the beginning with the parent and being in that um, that kind of setup where you don't have the benefit of being able to reach right over um, so you right. develop those those verbal coaching skills, but then also your observation skills are different because not only are you tuned into the child but you're tuning into that adult over there and establishing that rapport which right. uh, that comes with its own set of skills and and because not everyone learns the same way, you do have to have different kinds of coaching skills. I, th- right. I think one size does not fit all with adults as well. You have to figure out what works best. You know, this, the things that keep us up at night. Why did, oh, how could I have done that differently? Why didn't this work? Look at what else could I have done?
0: I'm, I'm reading more and more about adult learning theory and mm-hmm. really trying to go deeper in, into adult learning theory mm-hmm. uh, as much as I can, because I think there there are a lot of answers there in terms of how adults, you know, handle information and mm-hmm. how they learn new information and new mm-hmm. skills and how they apply, mm-hmm. as well as some of the, you know, strengths-based coaching that yes. that Catherine and Catherine Wilson and many mm-hmm. of the other folks uh, that are out there um are now talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we have to sort of bring those two things together, the strengths-based coaching mm-hmm. as well as adult learning theory together
1: mm-hmm.
0: to sort of um, make sure that we're doing all that we can to help parents be successful.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. Um, I had a thought and I lost it. Maybe it'll come back. Um, but the with the strengths-based coaching, that is a new that's something new that I've been learning more about too, um, mm-hmm. and swing space coaching has helped me to. It, it's in alignment with the way that I've learned to. I think with the way I learn, I like to have um, positive feedback and to be encouraged mm-hmm. rather than um, um, corrected. I suppose. I like positive right. feedback or helpful feedback. Um, when it's corrective, it, it seems like it slows things down a little bit because you uh, lose confidence. Sure. Um, and then, um, but I, I like that. I also like the idea of with the strength based coaching, you're asking your learning partner to have more of an active role. So it's more of a partnership rather than right. um, being so directive. So I've had to change the way I do things, <laughs> but I find it's a, it's a, it's helpful and positive. I, I, I do enjoy it, but just trying to figure out how do I convey that information to the parent? Mm-hmm. How do I choose my words so that they can hear what I am saying so that mm-hmm. we can meet and set up a plan together? Um, mm-hmm. But I think the, I think the the field of supervision, all, that information has really helped to drive that too. So that you're right. coming to an agreement and how we're going to work together, and um, mm-hmm. so I think that's um, I like that too. So I
0: I think one of the best questions um, that I've you know used that has been informative for me as a clinician as a therapist is asking the parent what I could have done differently.
1: What you could have done differently? What
0: I, as a clinician, what I could have done differently, that would have made a difference for them in terms of the session.
1: And do you do do that with every session that you do now? I haven't tried that before. I certainly try.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, I wouldn't say it always happens, but I Mm -hmm. I certainly try to to check in with the parents as Mm -hmm. often as I can. Um, and I think it I think what it does um, is that it shows that you are willing to be vulnerable mm-hmm. and that you're not coming from this position of superiority because you're the professional and you mm-hmm. know the content, but that it is a partnership, just like you're saying
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that you want. Just as they want your feedback,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you want their feedback. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it it allows you to be vulnerable to get that Im- information back from them, mm-hmm. uh, and and that can lead to some very you know great conversations, you know, or um, great feedback, you know, about you know how things were presented or different. You know, there have been different things that have come up to me and I thought, oh, i never would have thought that or never <laughs> would have, you know, really thought in those terms. And, and it's changed how I've done therapy with different families.
1: Mm. Now, do you, do you have a, I know that you have a lesson plan that you send ahead before mm-hmm. your sessions. Do you mm-hmm. put that on your lesson plan sheet that, okay, oh. here's the point where I'm going to ask you for feedback of how things no. went or, you know. We, we, just...
0: always, we always have about, um, you know, five to 10 minutes at the end of every session. Mm-hmm. Where we, you know, ask the parents uh, if they have any questions about what we've talked about, um, uh, any questions about, you know, the goals or the activities. And then, um, Usually I'll, I will ask um, at that point, because uh, we usually have the grad students involved with it too, mm-hmm. uh, what, what could I have done differently during the mm-hmm. session uh, that would have made learning for them mm-hmm. better uh, or easier? I like that. Um, I, think it's a, I think it's an important question to ask because mm-hmm. if, mm-hmm. you know, it, when we think about partnership in this process, it really does get at that equal partnership Mm -hmm. Uh, is that and that professionals have to be willing um, to take in a sense some criticism or some um or or parents giving you feedback that you you would not maybe be expecting (laughs) Mm -hmm. right Uh, i've never had anything really terrible but you know they've they've said you know you know you know, I like the way you explain this, but if you, you know, maybe you know, I didn't realize that you meant this, and you mm. know, you would have said this. Mm-hmm. You know, that would have made it easier, or you know, mm-hmm. things like that. And I thought, oh, okay, I see that. I was, use, I was using too much terminology, or mm-hmm. I was, you know, didn't break it down quite in the way that I should have, or mm-hmm. um, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think that's great because. I could see how that can develop a certain set of skills for the parent
0: mm-hmm. to
1: get lots of practice and giving feedback to other professionals that they're working with on their child's team to be able sure. to say, this is the kind of information that helps me learn best or, right. or to be able to have practice with someone like you, because you've been working together to feel comfortable stepping out and speaking up to say, could you show me that again? Or I could, I, Oh, I don't really need so much of ter- ter- the terminology, but I need more practice with this or something just to help them in their own mind to be able to talk about the things that they are seeing and how they can advocate for themselves. And in doing that, they're also modeling for their child how to advocate for themselves too. So I think that's awesome. I'm, I wrote that down. I'm going mm-hmm. to start. I'm going to start. I'm going to steal that. I'll give you credit. So I won't steal Please it. Steal I'll give you like you know. It. That is a great idea. I, I like that. I, I like that. <laughs>
0: so if if you use it, share with me at some point in the future what what you get back because I'm okay. I'll be curious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how so now 2019? How many years have you been back at the Atlanta Speech School?
1: Um, oh my gosh! Look in the at the calendar. It's been eight years, I think. Eight, eight years. years now. Wow. So total yeah. of 16 years for my first eight, now 16 years here and 16 mm-hmm. years at the children's hospital. So I've been around for a little while. So
0: I usually do five. So I'm, I'm here, <laughs> <laughs> uh, here at Akron. I've, I've been here, uh, since 2011. So this is the, it'll be eight years this summer. So it's yes. the longest I've been at any one. Yeah. Um, that's great. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, and you've done lots of different things, so it's not like you've been eight years doing the same thing,
0: right? Right. And that's yeah. what has um, kept things fresh and mm-hmm. and interesting. Uh,
1: I think we're similar in that way. I like I like to learn different things, even though I've stayed just in Atlanta. I've done different things, and yeah,
0: you mix it up. You do. Yes. Things. I think that's that's really important. Um,
1: Life lifelong learners.
0: Yeah. 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 I would get too bored. Uh, if I just, if I was doing in 2000, what I was, if I was doing now what I was doing in 2011 when I came to Akron and mm-hmm. only doing that, mm-hmm. I would be bored to death. Um, even though I'm doing yeah. a lot of the same things, mm-hmm. it's just, we've, we've evolved the program in different ways. And mm-hmm. so, um, at that point, I, I wasn't going to the children's hospital twice a week, you know, and and being over there. So, mm-hmm. um, these these things just kind of happen, and and so mm-hmm. you you keep working at them so that you can have these different opportunities.
1: Well, you're doing lots of different things, so you're setting a new standard, and. New- more things that we could try, more things well, to do. And,
0: and the new company and the new podcast that's, is something yes. too, and, and that's been a real joy. And I do appreciate you uh, doing this today. Well, um, as to we start it. to wrap up, what, I really do appreciate your time. Um, what uh, advice would you give? People that were starting on that little journey, maybe they are pro- professionals that want to get certified and mm-hmm. and do the same kind of things that you're doing. What would what advice would you give them?
1: Um, well, fortunately, I had the opportunity last week to go and talk to a group of graduate students, and I think I think they're all graduate speech pathology graduate students at Georgia State University, and. I went in, um, actually, I was asked asked to come in and talk about the difference between articulation therapy and auditory verbal therapy, (laughs) and initially, I was teasing the gal who asked me to um, come and talk because she gave me 20 minutes, (laughs) and I thought, okay, so I really have to scale everything down, so um, I ended up, she said, oh, you can talk for as long as you want to, so I ended up talking for at at least an hour, like, come on, you know. You can't, can't ask a, an SLP to talk for just 20 minutes but uh, or, or to be able to make all the points that I wanted to make, but if I only had 20 minutes or less than that, I think the main thing that I said to them um, would be, one, if they're interested in auditory verbal therapy, would be to actually go and observe, go, on, go to their local, um, if there was a a private SLP or a private AV therapist who's working to go and see the kids go and see the, see a session go. And uh, because no matter how much someone could tell me about what was possible for children who are deaf and hard of hearing, I didn't believe it until I actually saw it um, or to be actually to talk to someone who, um, or talk to a parent and, and uh, to be able to witness what was possible for these kids. Um, i think that, that that would that's one thing because uh, i think that's um that's one of the most powerful things that i, I could do and the other that's thing right. that i would do is um, encourage them to go and spend some time with an audiologist who does who works with children as well see if you can shadow with them go and see what it's like and talk and per- or just shadow for a day i think mm-hmm. that would be one of the biggest pieces of information that i could give because it's in seeing what what people do, how they use their that auditory information, what does it look like with regard to testing and amplification, and then what does it look like in a um, in an individual session, in a classroom, in a school, um, talking and play, getting feedback from parents. I think that 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 would be um, that would be the the advice that I would give um, because even now while we 've been around for so long, we, I think people get people who've been in this field for a long time i It seems like we get a, not that we get jaded that, or that we just assume that everybody thinks like we do mm-hmm. so that when someone asks me what I do for a living and I tell them i 'm a speech pathologist i 'll hear oh that 's nice, but I always have to put in a plug you know and one of the things that I really love is that I work with children who are deaf and hard of hearing to learn to listen and talk, and they always pause and go what because their assumption is that I teach sign language and then I actually had a good friend who, who I thought she knew what I did and I told her about cochlear implants and she said what you mean people who can't hear can actually <laughs> yes they can they can learn to hear and learn to learn to listen and they can talk to you and talk on the phone and learn more than one language and and she was just totally blown away. So I think um, it was, and it was actually it's a, a person to person kind of thing. So word word of mouth or being able to go observe, I think that's that's one of the biggest things that I would do. So I invited the class. It's like come and see me. Come, that's great. just because that was, and I've already had three students have taken me up on the, my offer. It's like come on, so. And that way, I think that takes away from making it seem like it's some kind of an agenda, like visual manual versus right. oral or any of that kind of thing. I, I not trying to push an agenda, just like come and see what we do. Come see, come ask, come talk to them. So that's well, what I would and say. who
0: knows? One of these uh, young people that you t- spoke to may decide to specialize in this. I hope because so. Because you went there and spoke to that class. Mm-hmm.
1: So I have, I have a good role model for having someone like you to encourage me, I'm um, pa- paying it forward. So well,
0: well, thank I don't you. Know that, but, <laughs>
1: well, that's true.
0: <laughs> it's yeah, true. Stories, it, I know you have too, that, you know, it was, I had this, this one guest lecturer came in, I'd never thought about doing that. And they were so impressive and, and that, and that's what sparked my interest. And mm-hmm. i heard that story several times. Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, I think I think that is true of, um, well, I, in the field of speech language pathology, that is, that's what it is. It's about making that connection and finding the best niche for, for us to be able to do that. And it's so great to be able to have lots of different opportunities to make that connection and help or help to facilitate that connection for that individual so that they can be successful. And I think that's, I'm glad we do what we do. I think that's. That's why we do what we do. So this this uh, this avenue, this venue is really cool. The podcast is great, yeah. and I have all kinds of ideas. And it's like, wow, to be able to use technology in a way that can make that connection over large distances. That That's it's right. um, and and I the. The feedback, like I feel like you're, um, even though you're in a little square on my <laughs> computer screen, mm-hmm. I, I'm enjoying getting a chance to to visit with you. And sure. even though I don't get to see you all the time, but this is this is really great. So, yeah.
0: well, enjoy this. Thank you. Thank you for do- doing this today and being a part of the podcast. And um, I will see you soon, hopefully at an at an upcoming conference.
1: Yes. Oops. You can see the lights just went out. (laughs) Well, I will look forward to seeing you at, yes, definitely at an upcoming conference. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much.
0: Kathy is a great friend and colleague, and I really appreciate her time with us today. And so, if you're passionate about what we're doing with this podcast, please consider being a patron. Go over to patreon.com, find the Listening Brain podcast, and select a level that suits you. We also have some great incentives that you get when you sign up. So please think about it, and we really appreciate any support you can give. This podcast has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network, and thank you, as always, for listening.